summer of 67 was a great year for me. And uh, I'm really okay that there are a lot of you in the room that weren't even born then. Okay. Um, but that June, we got notification. It came in a postcard by mail. We didn't have, you know, email and all that other kind of stuff back in 67. We got the postcard that we could go pick up our senior ring. And so I officially entered into that higher class of people called seniors in high school. And on the 25th of June of that summer, I will never forget, believe it or not, the very first worldwide satellite transmitted live telecast on that evening, June the 25th, 1967. And there were some of us that were alive and saw it. I saw it. The closing act in this one-hour telecast that was seen in 26 countries by over 400 million people was the Beatles. And they had been asked, they had asked to perform something, a simple song that would be understood and could be translated by any peoples in any of the nations who were tuning in. And that night, to close the show, the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. Ready? Sing it with me. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Oh, yes, yeah, enough. <laughs> we get the idea. The sentiment is lovely, though incorrect. All we really, really need is the God who is love himself. But the need, the desire for love, the cry of every heart is to be loved and to love worldwide. Mark Rutland recalls a survey in which Americans were asked what words they would most like to hear. And he predicted the overwhelming favorite. First choice, I love you. Second choice, I forgive you. Coming in third place, are you interested? A little surprising. Supper's ready. Yeah. Folks, this is a hungry, thirsty world in which we live. Is it not? I was, I was moved this week. I've been reading a book, the latest book offering by Philip Yancey. It's called Vanishing Grace. And there were two sections in the book, separate sections, that just really spoke to me. It made me think. It, it caused me to pause and just sit quietly you know, after reading and thinking about what I just read. And one of them was the words of the daughter of the very famous atheist, Bertrand Russell. And she says that her father's whole life was a search for God, a quest for God. Somewhere in the back of my father's mind, she wrote, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had 
once been filled by God. But he lost it. He was never able to find it again. He, he was never able to, to find that thing that would fill that, that void. He became an atheist. In Bertrand Russell's own words, there is a darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. What was it, the daughter was asked, that kept your father from faith? And she said, I would have liked to have convinced my father that I had found what he had been looking for, that ineffable something that he had longed for all of his life. I would have liked to have persuaded him that the search for God does not have to be in vain, but for him it seemed hopeless. He had known too many blind Christians. By that she means unwilling to really dig deep and to investigate faith and be able to talk about faith intelligently. Too many blind Christians, too many bleak moralists, rule keepers who suck the joy from life. And too many Christians who persecuted their opponents, criticized and belittled were it not for that, perhaps he could have seen the truth, listen, that they were hiding. Oh, it stung me. How is it that we hide the truth? What is it that we're not able to make visible to the world? And then a few chapters later, I came on this story. The story of, uh, of Dr. Francis Collins. You may know that name. No one would dispute uh, Dr. Collins' credentials as a scientist. He holds a PhD and MD degrees from very prestigious universities. This was the doctor, the Dr. Collins, that directed the Human Genome Project. He headed the team that successfully mapped out all three billion letters of the genetic code. Monumental for science and for medicine. Collins is also a very committed Christian, a Christ follower. And he has spoken publicly about it. He, he's been involved in cordial public debates with very well-known atheist thinkers such as Christopher, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. Well, when Francis Collins was nominated to head a few years ago the National Institutes of Health, the nation's largest scientific organization, it caused quite a stir especially within the scientific community. Uh, his nomination was criticized and opposed by many. One scientist accused Collins of suffering from some form of dementia and even said publicly, I don't want, an American, I don't want American science represented by such a clown. Skeptics 
scoffed at his faith, at his respect and belief in the Bible as Scripture, as the Word of God. Television talk show host Bill Mayer, famous for being a friend of faith, right? Mayer had Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, on his show and characterized Collins as a loon who believes in a talking snake. To which Dawkins replied, he's not a very bright guy. But in time, as the head of the National Institutes of Health, he began to win over, one at a time, his critics. And as impressive as his achievements are scientifically and medically, what's most impressive to me is the way he has treated most of his opponents. He made routine visits to Oxford. He would always go and spend time with Richard Dawkins. Similarly, when he, he would often initiate, initiate meetings with Christopher Hitchens, who was the author of the book, God is Not Great, and a self-proclaimed, he coined the phrase, militant atheism. Uh, I watched Hitchens on a TED Talk only about two months ago. Well, when Collins learned that militant atheist Hitchens had esophageal cancer, he called and he offered to help. As the director of the NIH, he had to approve many government-funded research grants. He knew about some cutting-edge approaches that were based on cancer um, genomics. And over the next months, he invested hour upon hour with Hitchens' family, going over options for treatment. Christopher Hitchens lived with his cancer for about a year and a half, and he wrote regularly of his ordeal. It was chronicled monthly in a column in the Vanity Fair magazine where he told of the hateful messages that he received from Christians, including one who, believing mistakenly that Hitchens had throat cancer, rejoiced that he got cancer in the same part of his body that he used for blasphemy. And then he wrote, Now comes the real fun when he is sent into hellfire forever. In Yancey's book, it records one of the last columns that Christopher Hitchens wrote in Vanity Fair. It was a column that paid tribute to Francis Collins, whom he described as one of the greatest living Americans and our most selfless Christian physician. He wrote of Dr. Collins as the great humanitarian who was devoted to the works of C.S. Lewis 
and who wrote the book, Collins' book, The Language of God. He actually, in the article, recommends a book for others to read about how God speaks. He says of the book, he has set out the case for making science compatible with faith. I know Francis, too, from various public and private debates over religion. And he has been kind enough to visit me in his own time to discuss all sorts of novel treatments and only recently even imaginable treatments only recently even imaginable that might apply to my case. Now folks, Christopher Hitchens had no deathbed conversion. But you know what he experienced? Love. And when I read that, I have to tell you, I sat there for a few minutes and I said, Lord Jesus, I want to love like that. I want to love like that. Do you? Somehow I think it's within us, those of us who know Christ, that somehow we know not only that we are to love like that, but based on the scripture that we read today, we have the resource we need to love like that. We can. So let's read scripture. This may be a little out of order back there, Jr. okay? But let's go to the scripture, if you will. 1 John chapter 4, begin with verse 7. We're in a verse-by-verse study through 1 John. We come once again for the third time to the subject of love. Every time John circles back, you know, it's a healthy reminder that we need probably every day. You know, so that we understand the purpose for which not only Jesus came, but why we're here, why we're left on this planet. And so we begin with verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And by this... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped a phrase. Verse 11, Beloved... I told you I was skipping around, okay? Beloved... If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son into the, to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So that we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is so also are we because as he is so also, you hear that? Also are we in the world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. For he does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. As I said, this is the third time that John has circled back to this very crucial um, discussion about love. If you begin to have a grasp of what John's talking about, then you begin to realize that you have been entrusted with the most powerful force in the world. We have a world that's living in fear of, of what? Terrorism, right? John is telling us there is, a, there is something more powerful than that. That this is the most powerful, most powerful thing in all the world. Now John has given us a vocabulary. Now I'm just going to remind you, put the vocabulary up, would you, JR? Do you see where that one is? I can't see the back back there. All right. You see the vocabulary? Here's where we've been, okay? We talked about love in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3. In, in chapter 4, things are a little different. I'll point that out to you in a moment. But in, in, in John's letter, in his letters, he, he uses the word agape 46 times. You've got five chapters in John and a couple of other letters, one chapter apiece. I mean, that's coming back to it pretty often, right? Wouldn't you say? He uses it 46 times, okay? In chapter 2, when he talks about love, he uses love five times. In chapter 3, when he, when he talks about the agape, he uses love agape nine times. In the verses we just read... From 7 to 21, he uses the word love 27 times. Are you getting the picture? He's landed on pretty thick, isn't he? You see, it would be important to us as believers in Christ to know what the word agape really means. Right? And so we talked about that back when we looked at chapter 2. And so I would encourage you... If, if you're a believer, that's a word you ought, to, you ought to spend some time right there. Figuring out what agape 
really means. Now, and then once you get that, go to the second word that's reoccurring again and again in these, the context of his teaching on love. And that's the word brother, Adelphos. It's used 13 times. And then the term one another, you know, alilon, seven times. And so what is John saying repetitively again and again to the Christ follower? One of the most important things that's going to happen is going to happen right here in this room. Whether or not we're going to figure out how to love each other in the way God wants us to love each other. That make sense? Are you with me? Okay, and, and John is going to have something new to say about that one, okay? And then, and, and then there's the word in, in, in John's writings, and here in 1 John, he uses the word abide, minnow, 24 times, okay? Now, the word abide means to dwell, or it can be translated to live. The New American Standard, I think, or the NIV, says it means to live in, to, you know, so it's the idea of that there's this, you know, that we take up residence. He takes up residence in us, and we take up residence in Him, and we dwell with, with Him. And so that's another word that if we're a Christ follower, I think it'd be really worth our while to spend some time figuring out what, the, what it means to abide. And you might start with John chapter 15. Good place to spend some time. Abide. Now, here's the new word that John adds in this text, and it's the word teleos. It's um, perfected. Verse 12. Verse 12. Go back to it. What did he say? See, I got it out of order. That's okay. All right, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And he uses that term, he uses the adjective perfect to describe the noun love, perfect love, and three times he uses the verb, a verbal form, that, that, talking about how that love is perfected. And the word, the word perfected here that we translate, or teleos, you know, it can mean um, finished, complete, it can mean whole, it, it can mean um, mature. Okay? As in Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about we are together, you know what I'm saying, growing every one of us in, to be, into maturity in likeness to Christ, and it's teleos. It's, it's what's used in the scripture for mature as well as for perfect. Are you getting finished, the idea? Saying so, so we're saying, brothers, we need to love each other in, in such a way that, that our love is becoming is, is perfected. That's, that ain't shallow stuff, is it? It's not shallow stuff. And, and so if I was going to summarize this text for you, and, and I would just encourage you to spend some time digging in, and going back and rereading the text, I would say there, you know, there are three principal things that John communicates here, and I'm just going to summarize them because of time. The first is, is that this perfect love originates in God the Father. This perfect love originates in God the Father. Love, he says, is from God. It's supernatural. 
And, you know, if you're, there's two things about agape. It's supernatural and it's sacrificial. It always, it always comes with a cost. It's always willing to pay a price. It's not natural. It's, it's supernatural. Um, okay, I, I'm going to keep going because I want to I, I get to the chase here. Um, so John is saying of this love, it originates with God. And, and those of us who express it in love for one another and for the brothers demonstrate that we not only have been born again, we have a, a, a new birth in Him, but we also have, we, we know God. We, we are coming to know Him in an intimate way. And, and then, so, so the first thing he says is this perfect love, this perfect love originates in God. And then he says this perfect love uh, was made visible for all to see in Jesus. In verses 9 and 10. For, for this uh, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this, is, in, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We said several things about Jesus. What we see so clearly in Jesus, and one of them is we see His, mention, his mission. He was sent by God. He was sent by God. Um, because God loved, He sent His Son. So he was, Jesus was on a mission from the Father. He was sent to us from God. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? So he, you know, Jesus is on a, a mission here. And, and there's two things that he is going to accomplish in that mission. One of them is he's going to impart life to us. That, that we are going to be given life. That we might have life in him. And, and secondly, he's not only he's going to give us life, but he's going to die for us. But he, he came to give life. It, it, and, and this is exactly what, you know, we... Um, um, what we understand when Jesus gets in the conversation in John chapter 10, he says the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what Chad talked about last week. There are unholy spirits that are seeking to undermine everything that God wants to do in our lives. He says the, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy, to tear us down. But I have come, Jesus says, that they might have life. Zoe. It's not bios, it's not existence, it's this quality, this character of life that, that, by the way, is eternal. I have come that they might have life and that they might live it and start living it now to the full, in abundance. Now we get thinking abundance starts what? You know, like, like we get our pie in the sky by and by. Oh, give me a break. Abundance starts now. He came to impart life into us. Resurrected life into us. We've been talking about that through this series. And then he came to be an, the propitiation of our sins. He, he came to, to be our atoning sacrifice. And, and uh, um, and the word really clearly indicates that this is 
Uh, that, that word is connected to the idea that, uh, that a sacrifice that basically um, removes from us the wrath of God. God's wrath. So, so we see, you know, in, in G- and it's important that we really see in Jesus the, the perfect love of the Father who sends Jesus. And Jesus loves us perfectly. And, 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 and he makes visible the invisible God. You know, you, you'll notice in this text, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working cooperatively. The, the God the Father loves and He sends the Son. The Son lives this sinful life so He can die as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for us, so that He, in the resurrection, He can impart life to us, abundant life to us. And, and, and John says, man, that ought to just motivate the hound out of us, right? To love. To love each other and, and, and to love those who God places in our path, you see. Because here's the third thing in, in, in verses 11 and 12. This love is perfected in us. It's perfected in us when we love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us and and uh, and and so i would suggest to you that beginning with verse 13 and, and through the end of the chapter to verse 21 he's talking about that process of how love is perfected in us but one of the things that you need to hear is that the verb tense here when, when he speaks of the love love being perfected in us the verb tense is is actually, um, it's a perfect a passive indicative verb. Maybe that means nothing to you, but so let me explain. The idea of if something is, if, if a verb is, uh, is, is in passive voice, um, it means that the subject is not the actor, but the subject is being acted upon. In other words, in other words, what is the source of perfect love? It isn't us, but we're being acted upon. You know, and the indicative says it's a done deal. It's a matter of fact. It's happened. That's secured in the finished work of Christ. Can't add to it. Remember when we did Colossians about a year, two years ago? And, and we, you know, we divided Colossians into two halves, chapter 1 and 2, the divine indicative. You know what I'm saying? What Christ accomplished, done, deal. Finished work on our behalf. You know what I'm saying? So we enter into that life which He has provided for us. And then chapter 3 and 4 of Colossians, we talked about the, you know, the, the divine imperative. You know what I'm saying? How do we live in light of what God has done already done for us and has, do, has done in us. And so, we're, so this is a... And, and the perfect tense there just would indicate that this is a completed, continuous result having full effect. In, in, a, in a sense, just saying, because I have Christ in me, I have in me perfect love. It's acting upon me. It's already done for me. I have what I need. And it's continuously active 
continuously producing results. That's what John is saying. That's, what, that's what's happening in the life of the Christian. And if it's not happening in your life, then it's time to check it out. I mean, where have you been living? Because apparently you're not abiding in His love. You're not abiding in Him because He is in the bold, grand theological statement here in this text, God is love. That's who He is. There's two huge theological statements in John, 1 John. God is light and God is love. Perfect love. Complete love. Full love. And so I would encourage you to read verses 13 to the end and, and just think about the qualities of that love as it's, being, as, it's being, as it's acting within your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, in verse 13, he brings the Holy Spirit into that mix. to say, here's what's happening inside of you, Christian, so that you'll know why you're so stirred about this thing called love. But here, and... Okay, here's why this is so critical and why it's so important. Can I just tell you why this is so critical and so important? Because the world's not listening. They are not listening to our words. They don't care what we have to say. They don't. They are not listening. George Barna Group does religious surveys in America, has been doing it for decades. In 1996, 85% of those who perceive themselves to be unaffiliated or non-churchgoers, 85% said they had a very favorable view of Christianity. 2009, 13 years later, same questions. Not 85%. Those who approve Christianity today among the unaffiliated, unchurched, 16%. Another survey conducted by Gabe Lyons and uh, and David uh, Kinnaman. And it's in the book, uh, The Church in the Age of Crisis. It reveals that Christians are most often by unchurched seen as hyper-political, out of touch with reality, pushy and arrogant, and in particular, young Americans, young Americans below the age of 30 who don't attend church describe Christians this way. They are anti-homosexual. 96% said that. They are judgmental. 87% said that. They are hypocritical. They are hypocrites. They don't live what they say they believe. 85%. They are insensitive to those around them and to the needs of others. 70%. Now, listen. I don't think that's true of all Christians. But I will tell you one thing is true. That's how you're seen. By the world. They, are not, they, don't, they don't care what you have to say anymore. John lived in the same kind of world, people. 
under Roman domination, you know what I'm saying, with, an emperor, with emperor worship that made Christianity illegal, and they were persecuted for their faith. And how did they win the world over to Jesus? One word. Love. They don't care what you're saying. A Harvard student tells the story of Mother Teresa coming to speak at Harvard. He said, one by one, the world's luminaries and business leaders and philosophers had come to that school and often failed to impress the cynical students of Harvard. But this time, a wrinkled, withered woman in a nun's habit, so diminutive that literally she had to stand on a box to be able to reach the microphone in the great hall at Harvard. She spoke and she didn't try to win over her audience. Gently but firmly, she informed them that they lived in the culture of death. That they were surrounded by false gods and material wealth and sexual pleasure and that most of them would probably forfeit their very lives in search of success. And when she finished, Harvard students leapt to their feet and she received a resounding, lengthy, standing ovation. Despite having just scolded them soundly. You know why? Because she lived the life. She lived what she believed. And she loved and when you earn trust like that, you can speak the truth in love. But not until you love. So Christian, we don't go with an agenda. We are told to love God. We're told to love our neighbors. I was blessed this week. We got to keep our grandkids. And so Friday, we planned a tea party with granddaughter Ryan. And um, the little neighbor girl that lived, used to live next door to us. And uh, so I became a friend of Michael and, and his family. He has a daughter that's four years old. And, and so we planned a play date knowing that we were going to have Ryan, you know, for, for grand, grand, grandma and grandpa fun, you know. And uh, so Deb planned this elaborate little tea party and had a little table out and went and got her little bitty tea set that she had when she was a little girl. And she cooked banana muffins. And, and, so, uh, and so I had invested, I've invested, you know, I, I mean, several years ago, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life, I have stood in front of my window almost daily praying for my neighbors. And, and God impressed on me, quit having an agenda, Dave. I want you to love, just love them. And so I would slip over on Saturday morning and I'd mow my lawn and then I'd just slip over and I'd mow Mike's lawn. And I'd get the edger out and I'd edge my yard and I'd edge his yard, you know, whatever, early in the morning and I'd sweep it all up and he'd come out, you know, Saturday afternoon going. 
But I just decided, man, I'm going to walk across the street. If they're out, I'm walking across the street to talk to them. I'm going to, I'm going to find ways to, you know, to serve them. And so, 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 so Michael and his little girl, they, they show up for the tea party. And, and while Deb is entertaining um, Ryan and this new little friend having a tea party, Mike and I went and sat in the kitchen and we made a sandwich and we're sitting down to lunch. And for the first time, he brought up spiritual things. You know what I did? I started praying, oh Lord Jesus, let anything I say be seasoned with salt to make him thirsty. Because if you're at work in his heart, I want to join you in that work. But God, you placed me here and told me you gave me one command, and that is to love him. Just love him. Where he is, as he is. And watch for you to work. You want to love? <laughs> Let's get busy. Let's get busy. We have a thirsty world out there. And the range goes from the Christopher Hitchens of the world, the atheists, down to the most receptive little child in VBS this week. Right? Let's love them for Jesus' sake. Let's pray.